0: Welcome to Thoughts on Thriving, a holistic lifestyle and wellness podcast that's here to help you become the healthiest, happiest, most aligned version of yourself. I'm your host, Ava, a registered dietitian in training and health and wellness junkie. I'm so excited to have you here as I dive deep into meaningful conversations covering topics from nutrition and mental health to spirituality and self-development and everything in between with experts in many fields. I'm so happy you're choosing to learn how to thrive today. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome back to thoughts on thriving today. We have such a good episode for you guys. I always say it's my favorite one after every new episode, but really I feel so inspired and ignited by these guests and I hope you guys do too. Today's guest is Dr. Vanessa Mendez, and Dr. Mendez is a triple board certified gastroenterologist, internist, and lifestyle medicine physician. So she's a doctor that specializes in digestive disorders, nutrition-related disorders, and she also has a specialty in plant-based nutrition, which is something that we talk about in this episode as well. And she takes a really holistic approach to her patients and their diseases. Her goal isn't just to treat the symptoms, but to get to the root cause of ailments and provide lasting relief, which is what we need more of in this world and in the medical system today. All her methods are evidence-based, and she uses lifestyle changes first to promote wellness before resorting to medicine or surgery and things like that. So, Dr. Mendez went to Harvard University undergrad, no big deal, and then she went to Puerto Rico to start her medical training and completed her residency at the University of Miami, and then also did a fellowship in gastroenterology at Tulane, and she's also trained in epidemiology at... Florida International University, and then a Cornell University plant-based nutrition certification as well. So she is very well educated, very well versed in all of this stuff. We have such a jam-packed episode for you guys today. It's one that I have listened to twice already, and I recommend you all take notes, listen to it multiple times. There's so much good information. We get so deep into the topic of gut health. We talk all about the process of digestion. What is the gut microbiome? and the functions of the gut microbiome and what factors influence our microbiome. We talk about stress. We talk about the gut-brain axis, common causes of gut imbalances and what you can do to fix them and how to improve the diversity of your gut microbiome. We also talk about supplements and why they may be causing more harm than good, the best diet for gut health, Um, Dr. Mendez also gives three tips for dealing with bloating and gas from beans and other plant-based foods, which is really, really helpful for a lot of people listening, I'm sure. And she also talks about What is a healthy amount to poop per day? And this answer might surprise you. So we go all over the place. There's so much more than what I just mentioned. Dr. Mendez was such a lovely guest to have on. And she also most recently, I forgot to even mention this, started or co-founded Planted Forward in 2021. And Planted Forward is a multi-specialty integrative telemedicine practice. And she co-founded this with a few other practitioners and the providers at planted forward do all of this by taking the time to listen to their patients, assess the patient's whole health, you know, mind, body and spirit. And they come up with a therapy plan with the patient that can achieve lasting healing rather than what happens in our medical system today, which is a doctor comes in, sees you for five minutes, probably prescribes you something you don't need without getting the whole picture And I am just a big fan of the way they're doing things at Planted Forward. So make sure you pay attention when you listen to this episode. You don't want to miss all the good info in here. And before I let you listen to my conversation with Dr. Mendez, I would just love if you guys could please please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify. You can leave ratings on Spotify now. So please, please, please give us five stars and help this show spread to the ears of the people who need to hear it. And also follow us on Instagram at thoughts.on.thriving. I post tons of updates, inspirational quotes, affirmations, lots of stuff there. And also follow us on TikTok at thoughtsonthriving. Share the episodes with a friend share this episode with a friend if you think someone could benefit from it and share us on Instagram. Do what you can to get this into other people's ears, please. And I am so grateful that you're here and that you're listening and I'll talk to you guys on the next episode. Enjoy. So I already told the audience a little bit about you and your background, but could you just share a little bit from your perspective about who you are and what you do?
1: Absolutely. So um, I'm a triple board certified gastroenterologist. So I took the traditional medical training into gastroenterology, which means I'm also board certified in internal medicine. So I deal with adults, um, only. Um, and then I became sub-specialized in GI and gastroenterology, which has been a long time passion of mine from a very early age. And then most recently, I also got triple board certified in lifestyle medicine, which is a more, a newer branch of internal medicine, a more, um, you know, proactive, preventative approach to health as a whole, taking into account more of the whole being and taking into account things such as exercise and stress into in in our everyday health.
0: Love it. I love the holistic approach and everything you're doing and triple board certified. That is so Mm -hmm. (laughs) impressive. So I'm curious, what led you to that world of gut health and now plant-based nutrition? I know that that's a big specialty of yours. You're the plant-based gut doc on Instagram. <laughs> so how did you get into both of those things?
1: So my road to plant-based nutrition started early in my, uh, in my life, I think. Um, when I was a teenager in high school, I suffered from cystic acne. And I went through the traditional approaches of, you know, going to a dermatologist, being prescribed topical medication to put on my skin. And when that didn't work, then progressing to, you know, um, whether it was antibiotics or even I was even put on Accutane, which is a very potent medication that now has had like not, I think recalls, but definitely se- several class action lawsuits associated with inflammatory bowel disease and that medication. So, you know, I, every time I would take these medications, it would, my symptoms would improve my acting would improve a little bit, but then it would come back like many of the diseases, you know, it didn't really get to the root cause. These medications didn't really get to the root cause, but they were just kind of like a band aid, right? At least for me, it was at that point. So I started exploring, and at that time we were in the late 90s, so I started exploring, you know, on the internet, which was fairly new to me at that time, to all of us, anti-inflammatory diets. So I came across Dr. Wheel's anti-inflammatory diet, which was big back then, and then I cut off all dairy and red meat and processed foods for my diet, and honestly, I never... the the response was immediate and it was lasting like I was able to cure my acne by by avoiding all those foods and it never came back so I, I didn't have to go back on these medications ever again but you know they had already taken a toll on my on my health so that really was like a crash course a personal crash course into the power of nutrition in healing, um, and how it can be used as a, as a definitely as part of our therapeutic toolbox. It needs to be included in all disorders. If, uh, if not as the primary, then at least as an adjunct to other therapies that we're already, you know, uh, already using, we really need to exhaust all the therapies we have available to be able to treat these conditions. So That was the crash course. And obviously this was high school. So then I went on to college and I, you know, my old habits returned, but I had cured my acne. So it actually never came back. But, you know, in college, we all go through the regular, you know, drinking and eating and horrible lifestyle, no sleeping, lots of stress, all of that. So, you know, I ignored a lot of those nutrition, uh, that nutrition education I I had encountered and then went on to do my training in, in medicine, you know, went to medical school for four years, then residency. And then it, it was in residency that I started, uh, watching a lot more like Buddhist documentaries and just got, a bigger sense of what health was about not only in terms of nutrition you know buddhists follow a vegetarian diet but also in terms of lifestyle stress management etc so at that point i remember talking to my husband and telling him you know i wish i could be vegan because really this seems to solve a lot of the world's problems and then also telling him right after this could never you know we can never do this this is so difficult etc so Mm -hmm. then um Two to three years later, I was in fellowship, finally where I wanted to be, which was in gastroenterology, something that I really wanted to do from an early age. A lot of people ask me why I wanted to be in GI. It's a male-dominated field and, you know, it's procedure heavy. And, uh, I think, you know, it has a lot to do with the fact that my husband has had inflammatory bowel disease and he was diagnosed when he was 17 years old. We've actually known each other since we were like 12 or 13. We met in middle middle school, but, um, yeah. So when he was 17, he was diagnosed after he had been suffering with anemia, low blood count for a long time. And, ended up almost bleeding out, showed up to the hospital with a hemoglobin of a blood count of like four to six, and then was finally diagnosed with moderate to severe Crohn's disease. So I think it has a lot to do with that, definitely, for sure. Um, I also see GI as such a huge field with so many areas that you can specialize in. Like for example, me, I'm a general gastroenterologist, but I also practice as an IBD specialist as an inflammatory bowel disease treating Crohn's and colitis patients. But you can do everything, you know, you can focus on the pancreas, you can focus on the liver, you can focus on the whole digestive system as a whole, you can do advanced procedures, or you can do regular procedures like myself, uh, meaning colonoscopies, endoscopies, to diagnose and treat medical conditions. So I just saw it as a wonderful like balance of clinical time, being in the clinic and seeing and treating patients, but also hands-on experience by doing these procedures because I easily get bored. (laughs) So that balance of having both things throughout my day, like my day will be broken up into, you know, procedures. And then clinic time is something that keeps me active and mentally sharp. And, and yeah, it's a very cerebral uh, healed because it requires us to keep up to date with all the latest research, especially now with this explosion into a microbiome that we've seen in the last 10 years.
0: Wow, amazing. There's so much stuff I want to unpack within everything you just said. First of all, that's so cute that you met your husband that young and you guys are still together and he inspired part of your career trajectory. That's awesome. And I am really curious to know about You were saying, you know, you went to medical school and you were telling me earlier you went to Puerto Rico and then you came back and did your fellowship and residency or the other way around. But at any point in any of those places where you were getting educated to become a gastroenterologist, did you receive any nutrition education and what was that like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think that the average medical school dishes out about four to 20 hours Mm -hmm. of nutrition education in the four years that we do medical school. So I was definitely within that average, you know, I think that the traditional, you know, medical program and things are changing in, in big waves, right? Because we also now have lifestyle medicine uh, board certification, which is a huge improvement. And I recommend everybody listening who's interested in becoming a doctor, definitely explore that either as your primary specialty or uh, uh, like ha- how I've done it, you know, as my third board certification Um, and any, not only med- medical school, Students, really anybody who's in the healthcare field can become certified in lifestyle medicine, which is really exciting, including you. So, you know, I got the average nutrition education. I think medical programs do a good job about really uh, teaching you, you know, the basics of like proteins and carbohydrates and the building blocks of each. But Going beyond that and really looking at the studies that we have from all over the world, tying in what types of nutrition patterns can either prevent or cause disease or are associated with, with prevention or, or causing disease, you know, medical programs don't do that. So it is changing. And I think a lot of residents now are bringing those studies into the medical schools and, and starting discussions with the medical programs about it. But other than that, you know, I really didn't get more, more, but I was always interested in it from those early experiences as a teenager and having healed my acne with, with diet. So, yeah, you know, it, it's really unfortunate that we, we don't have enough of that nutrition education. So I had to seek it for myself. Mm-hmm. So I did that by the way of documentaries, the way of books and then dug deeper into research articles. And then now I try to keep up to date with all the research coming out. I think everything really did tie in for me once I was able to connect the microbiome with nutrition. And I think that that's where like the light switched for a lot of us. So as a gastroenterologist and my specialty being gut health, it always clicked like, of course, yeah, you put food in your body. And then that, you know, that means disease or health, right? Like it always clicked. And as a gastroenterologist, yeah, our gut is the first encounter of that food um, okay. with, the, with, with, your, with your digestive system. But it was never as obvious to me until I really dug deep into the microbiome of where the connection lay. So yes, obviously our digestive system starts breaking down food from the time we even smell or look at food right our brain starts processing and uh, secreting digestive enzymes in our mouth like we start salivating right mm. and then actually our stomach starts preparing itself to receive food at that point so that's why when you smell or or or, or look at food you start getting your stomach growling right that's your stomach churning gastric juices pl- um you know pumping in uh to be able to digest food once it's received um but then the, when you take the microbiome and then you really start connecting the dots of how um, it, it is related to all the other organ systems in the body by all the different um, processes it has. So we know that. The digestive system, you know, receives food, breaks it down and absorbs nutrients, which then flow through the rest of the body. But what we didn't know is that the microbiome has many, many other functions that the digestive system as a whole doesn't have. So we've learned to see the microbiome as its own organ system, for example. So the microbiome, you know, a lot of you have heard about it. It's about thirty to one hundred trillion microbes, which are viruses, bacteria, and other organisms, even fungi, even you know um, things like candida that live predominantly in our colon. We do have microbes throughout the other the rest of the digestive system, but when we refer to the gut microbiome, really is uh, it, it's uh, it resides in the colon more than anything else. So the microbes, whatever doesn't get digested in the rest of our digestive system and makes its way undigested to the colon, for example, such as fiber, the microbiome is really what's responsible for digesting it, breaking it down, uh, uh, extracting nutrients and, and creating these chemical byproducts that, that circulate throughout our body and can even cross the blood-brain barrier. So that's a huge function. So we, we used to think as food is, oh yeah, roughage, nothing happens with roughage, right? Like lettuce, okay, what you see come out, that's it. it. It didn't, nothing else happened. But actually a lot is happening with the microbiome coming into contact into with this roughage or fiber rich foods. You know, some of the other roles of the microbiome are, Metabolizing um vitamins such as vitamin K and certain B vitamins, for example. It also regulates our blood sugar and insulin levels. So, how much you know, um, how much insulin resistance really has a lot to do with our microbiome and its contact with food and our gut. Also, it regulates uh deposit of fat. So, obesity and obesity studies, both in human and in mice, have shown that if you transplant some microbiome from an obese person into a mouse that did not have any microbiome whatsoever, meaning a clean gut, they're going to become obese if they receive a microbiome that, that from an obese person and, and vice versa, skinny mouse, uh, like a regular mouse receiving a skinny person's microbiome, um, will, will turn into a skinny mouse. And, but then you cross them over. And then you transplant each other's uh, microbiome onto each other and the skinny mouse will become fat and vice versa. So a lot of um, regulation of lipid deposition and, um, and fat deposition in our body comes from the gut microbiome. Other aspects are uh, turning on and off genes. You know, who knew that genes could turn on could be turned on and off? Like we thought genetic material means we're doomed, right? either we have great genetic profile or we are doomed, but that's not true at all. In fact, the gut microbiome is responsible for turning on and off a lot of genes. So the beauty of the gut microbiome is that each of us has a unique one. Um, it's our own digital thing, like our own uh, unique fingerprint, um, just like our, our digital fingerprints. So that really opens up a lot of opportunities for therapy because the microbiome is influenced not only by our genes, but it's also influenced by the food we eat, um, but that by the environment that we live in, you know, everything we surround ourselves with, whether we live in the city or we live on a farm, whether we're inside all the time looking at a computer or we're outside in nature, whether we're getting enough sleep or not, all the toxins we come into contact with, you know, what products we're putting, inside our body or on our skin, for example. So really everything influences the gut microbiome and the microbes influence each other too, um, which is amazing. So, you know, it's easy for us to say, okay, you know, the microbiome, yeah, we have good microbes, we have bad microbes, but it's actually not as simple as that, you know? So in a balanced system, you're gonna have a lot of different um, species that are known to be beneficial microbes. Um, but you're also going to have ones that are um, that can be conducive to disease. But guess what? You're in a balanced microbiome. You are not going to be. You're not going to have a disease. It's when this balance gets out of out of out of balance, out of whack, that we really start to see the the beginning of disease and then develop the disease. So these not so good microbes, they have a role in the microbiome too. They're actually are doing crucial things within our gut microbiome, but it's only when they get out of proportion in numbers or the good ones are not supported and not reinforced that we see the system getting out of balance and then disease surfacing. So I know that was a lot of information, a crash course into the microbiome.
0: No, that was (laughs) amazing. Let me know your thoughts. My my actual next question for you after <laughs> the last one I asked was about the gut microbiome and what it is, what it does. So you just made it super easy for me as the host and kind of answered that for me. And I think that was so fascinating and such a just such a good way to kind of describe it in a short amount of time. I think that it's so interesting, especially with like the mice studies. I learned that in undergrad with the fat deposits and how if you put the microbiome of a fat mouse onto a skinny mouse, it would actually change the body composition of that skinny mouse. And so I think it's so fascinating that we can actually control our physical appearance, our, how we feel our disease state with these tiny little microbes in our gut. And I think it's more important to talk about so that other people can see maybe why they're having certain symptoms and why they're having certain disease states. And I know that you mentioned that the gut microbiome has so many functions and so many things affect it, like our environment. And I kind of want to focus on stress for a second, because I think that stress kind of gets this vague kind of, oh, stress causes disease, but really down to the nitty gritty mechanism. Could you kind of talk about the link between stress and the gut microbiome? Because I think it's the missing link in this conversation. Why does the microbiome cause disease?
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, this is something that again, we uh, was not taught to us in in, throughout my training, and the links um, between how stress really affects our health, um, has in medicine is not really explored or wasn't when I was in training, you know, and I completed my training four years ago. So I'm not mm-hmm. like a decade out of training. Um, but I am happy that, um, in your undergrad, they discussed my studies because again, we yeah. got no microbiome teaching whatsoever. <laughs> um, so at least, you know, uh, a lot of schools are incorporating this, this, uh, new research into, into their programs. That's great. So, um, you know, I think it comes down to the gut-brain axis, right? So um, when it comes to, and this is a newer field too, not explored by many doctors because they're not trained in it. And really, um, it's like you said, a lot of people throw around this, okay, yeah, decrease your stress, but what does that even mean? And why do I need to, like, we're all under stress. So how do I do that? And really Mm -hmm. what's at the, at the foundation of stress contributing to disease? So, for me, um, as, a, as a gastroenterologist and digestive disease specialist, um, it comes down to the gut-brain axis. So <clears throat> the gut-brain axis is a pathway of different connections that, that connect the gut and the brain. And how does that happen? Well, so the gut actually is responsible for secreting so many neurotransmitters, so many chemical enzymes that actually are communicate with the brain. You know, even though the neurotransmitters that are secreted in the gut mostly play a role in the gut and throughout the body and they actually don't cross the the gut-brain barrier, there is still communication going back and forth between the two systems, the gut and the brain. So um, the neurotransmitters, the chemicals, uh, enzymes that that they secrete are one way. The other way, the other pathway is through the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is a huge nerve So when you hear about um, the gut is your second brain, what that means is that the gut actually has the second largest number of nerve connections and neurons outside the brain and the nervous system, that biggest package is in the gut. So there's a lot of information being communicated within the gut, but also back into the brain through this nerve pathway. Um, And one of the biggest ones is the vagus nerve that runs straight from the gut to the brain and vice versa. So the gut and the brain communicate back and forth through there as well. And then the other um, part of this pathway is actually through the creation of short chain fatty acids, which is one of the byproducts that the microbiome secretes. So they, they release these short chain fatty acids when they encounter fiber. So when we eat fiber, fiber only comes from plant-based foods and not supplements, not animal products. When we eat fiber and it makes its way all the way to the colon and the microbes we said digest it, they break it down, they create short chain fatty acids. So these short chain fatty acids are gold mine mine because they are we have seen through many, many studies that they exert a positive influence on health throughout the entire body and these short chain fatty acids actually can cross the blood brain barrier not many things can cross the blood brain barrier but the short chain fatty acids can so there's a you know evidence of a direct communication as well so this gut brain axis is this these three, three armed, uh, um, what I pathway basically, you know, through the neurotransmitters and enzymes, um, through the nerve connections and the vagus nerve, and then through short chain fatty acids. And then the brain receives all this information and processes communicates back down as well. Um, when we experience stress, we experience it, we perceive it in our brain, right. And everybody experiences stress differently. You can take two people, who are shown the same disaster, for example, and they will perceive the events very differently. So again, this is a very complex system based on our life experiences, our genetics, our environment, um, the resilience we have built throughout our lives, It's just a very complex system. So when somebody perceives stress, um, that communicates to um, the rest of our body, but also to our gut. So, you know, Um, We start tensing up, our arteries start, you know, uh, tensing as well, constricting. So there are many physiologic processes happening throughout our body, including the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight. When we perceive stress, and again, it could, you could be in a situation where I would be like, that's not stressful, but for you it's stressful. Therefore it is stressful to your body and your fight or flight will be activated by activating your sympathetic nervous system. That, um, that basically uh, starts a cascade of events throughout our body, including in our digestive system. In our digestive system, when we have our fight or flight activated, we're actually stopping digestive processes, kind of like a paralysis of digestive processes throughout the upper part of our digestive system. So when people experience stress, they may get more heartburn, they feel like they don't digest food properly and then they may either get constipation or diarrhea. And why, why would you say if there's a paralysis? Why would you get diarrhea? Well, because if you're not absorbing nutrients, those nutrients are going to be dumped in your colon and in with it comes water. Whenever we don't break down foods and large molecules make their way into the colon, it can drag water with it. And it just comes out as diarrhea. So it stops our digestive system in in many ways. And it prevents the digestive processes. It also prevents other processes throughout the body that are crucial. So more now than ever, you know, we're in a constant state of stress because of a two and a half year old pandemic, right? And all the crazy stuff we're seeing in the news constantly, our resilience has really taken a toll because it's just constant bombardment, constant bombardment, of these life-threatening events that don't allow for us to get our resilience back up. So, you know, one of the things that I practice as an integrative gastroenterologist, meaning I really try to take all the information, even start with your childhood. Um, Did you have trauma when you were young? Did you have any kind of, you know, um, emotional, physical or sexual abuse while you were Uh, throughout your life, all of this is is so important, not only to digestive health, but through our to our overall health, and also our resilience. So, you know, um, in digging deeper into these uh, events in people's lives, and just the sheer, you know, number of stressful events we've experienced in the last two and a half years, we can really develop therapies that are unique to the person, and can really help them build that resilience back. And once they start practicing these easy, you know, free therapies like deep breathing, um, we can really fill up that resilience, you know, cup and, and get them feeling like they can take on their chronic conditions. Um, and their mind really, really changes to to how they perceive their their body, their their health and what their future looks like. So stress plays a huge role, you know, chronic stress, not only will activate that sympathetic nervous system, so that that becomes your new normal, that becomes your baseline. And it's hard to get that back, but it's very, but it's still very doable. But if you if you shift that, that baseline of where you're at on, you know, on a daily basis, it can really affect you or help you, right? If we shift it back down to where we're, our parasympathetic nervous system is more activated. So that's the opposite system of the, the fight or flight. The parasympathetic is the rest and digest. And that, you know, the vagus nerve has a huge role in that system. And when we do deep breathing, because the vagus nerve runs through our diaphragm and we do deep breathing, we're stimulating our diaphragm to move at a different rate. We're stimulating the vagus nerve, then it's activating the parasympathetic nervous system. We're bringing our, our basically, our um, resting condition back to where it needs to be. And we're optimizing the body to receive food, to digest food, but also to do all its other crucial functions throughout the body. So that's what I teach people from um, that gut-brain connection part of my practice to activate their parasympathetic nervous system more often, and identify when it—you know—when we're activating the fight or flight, bring it back, at least acknowledge it. You know, because recognizing there's an issue is fifty percent of the of healing. Um, The other 50% is working on how to resolve that. But first we got to recognize where the issue is at. So I, you know, I teach them how to recognize these stress responses, and then I give them the tools to activate their, their parasympathetic nervous system, bring down their stress response and really optimize their body for health. But yeah, um, you know, chronic stress has a has a negative effect on the gut microbiome. It creates, you know, studies have shown that it does uh, change that balance that we talked about initially, um, where, you know, you are depleting a little bit the beneficial microbes and activating more of the pro-inflammatory ones. So it has many, many different effects throughout the body, but at least in the digestive system is the ones that I described.
0: Wow. Thank you for explaining all that. And kind of sharing that link, because I think that is the missing piece. And a lot of people aren't aware of that, especially the vagus nerve. We don't really know that deep breathing can affect our gut or maybe we do intuitively, but that's such a good free tip that everyone can do right now to help stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system and their digestion. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. But besides stress, what are some other common causes of that imbalance, of that dysbiosis in the gut? And what can that cause when we have dysbiosis? We know it can cause gut issues like constipation, diarrhea, like you were mentioning, maybe some other heartburn, whatever it is. But can it cause things that aren't seemingly related to the gut as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So basically, as we mentioned in the beginning, the microbiome is 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 very susceptible to environmental factors, but it's also very resilient, right? So um, that's the good news that we really can um, do a lot of positive influence on the microbiome in short periods of time. But also, um, we see that negative influencers can affect the gut microbiome. So some of these include smoking, alcohol creates a more dysbiotic microbiome, more of an imbalance, you know, more of the Disease-promoting microbes and things like emulsifiers, so chemical additives that are in processed foods, that are really in many, many foods. They're chemical additives that are meant to bind things that have oil and water, for example. And chemical, these chemical additives, there's over like thirty to fifty of them that have been identified. So I always tell people when you're buying something that's packaged always read the ingredients and you as, you know, a dietitian in training, that's your number one, you know, uh, recommendation most of the time, because if you don't recognize a name in the ingredient list, then look it up and you still don't know what it is, then, you know, it's time to put it down Uh, because these chemical additives have been shown to create more imbalance in the microbiome and have been linked to things like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So you know, those are toxins that we want to avoid, just as we want to avoid smoking. And, you know, alcohol, if you have digestive issues, if you feel like your microbiome may be imbalanced, then, you know, alcohol is something that you should really avoid as much as possible. It's a known carcinogen, as much as I don't like to admit it, because I like my drink here and there, you know, it is, it is uh, now known as a carcinogen, a cancer-causing chemical. So um, other things, you know, like When we don't sleep enough or we don't have restorative sleep, that activates the stress response too. So that's gonna affect the gut microbiome. Environmental toxins, you know, so we know that there's actually more environmental toxins inside our homes than there are outdoor if you live in like most places in the world. Because, you know, yes, our air is polluted, but actually in the home, we have a lot more air pollutants. So everything in our home, from the paint in the wall to the furniture releases um, these fumes into the air and you're breathing them in. So um, that is definitely going to affect the gut microbiome because when we breathe in, we're actually swallowing air too. And also the water, you know, the water we drink every day, even what we think is filtered water still has a lot of heavy metals in it that affects the gut microbiome. So really many, many things. And Obviously, we all know that antibiotics affect the gut microbiome, but also other medications like um, antiacid medications affect the gut microbiome, aspirin and all of its, uh, you know, formulations affect the gut microbiome. But guess what? Supplements affect the gut microbiome too. And people are popping those like candy here and there. So, you know, I always try to educate, especially when it comes to supplements. um, I like to educate you to be a wise consumer, just like you're a wise consumer of medications. I think people are now more aware and they're really, you know, hesitant to take medications prescribed by their doctor. Obviously, you should always have a full discussion with your doctor regarding pros and cons and really Force them to make time, you know, because we know doctors are really pressed for time in this traditional healthcare system, but force them to go through the benefits and the risks of these medications so that you together, both of you can make an informed uh, decision regarding them. So I, you guys have become really wise consumers of these medications and really vetting whether it's, it's r- the right one for you uh, or not you need to be, do the same for supplements because actually supplements are not regulated by the food and drug administration, like uh, prescription medications. So the food and drug administration has very few regulations for supplements and the rest, it tells these independent companies to regulate themselves. So again, when you compare medication by prescription versus supplement, the regulation is very minimal for supplements. So you have to become very wise consumer of supplements, really, Um, you know, unless you're at risk for deficiency or have a documented deficiency, you have to really think about whether you want to go ahead and take that supplement or not. So all these things affect the gut microbiome. And again, a lot of things, right, are genetics, all these factors I discussed, all the microbes influence each other, and the food that we eat obviously affects the gut microbiome.
0: Well, very comprehensive list. I appreciate you mentioning products, especially toxins in our products. I actually just did an episode on non-toxic living and about how everything around us has toxins in it. And we have to be careful about what ingredients we ingest. And I didn't really talk too much about how they affect our gut, but I love that you brought that link in there because all of these things, sure, they affect our health. They can cause cancer, but they also affect our gut microbes, which is also the link between a lot of diseases. So thank you for kind of bringing that link in. I had a question about the supplements actually. So with the supplements, are the toxins and the supplements, the things that are going to cause dysbiosis in our gut, the actual vitamins and minerals and the herbs in the supplements or what they're encapsulated by? Or is it that if we're not getting it from a regulated company, the stuff that they're putting in there and calling it a vitamin? Is it what what is about the it, supplements? Can it cause- can be
1: any any aspect of it? So that's okay. the crazy thing, right? There's so many variables. So then I know that seems like, oh my God, that's hopeless. Like, what do we do? Right. So Remember that it's the overwhelming influence on your microbiome that really determines health or disease. Many, the, the microbiome is constantly shifting, but it's in general very stable. So there are, are minor changes every day. Why? Because these microbes, like let's say, I'll t- take a typical bacteria like E. coli, there are non disease causing E. coli in your body. Um, E. coli replicates every 20 minutes, right? So in 24 hours, you actually have like 50 generations, a new generations of this bacterial strain right so the microbiome replicates at a way faster pace than we ever could imagine 50 human generations right that's like how many hundreds thousands of years right thousands of years um so what that means is that it's constantly replicating it's constantly shifting and it's constantly being influenced by our environment and shifting but it's the overwhelming pattern of your nutrition of your lifestyle of the products you use that really gives you that equal sign. Does that equal health promoting or disease promoting for you? So that's why I encourage people and empower them to not get bogged down by the minutia, by the little details and just take you know action steps to start improving. So pick three aspects of your life like whether it's nutrition, sleep and movement, right? And let's start doing one to two healthier habits per day at the end of the week. What does your week look like? Was it much better than the week before? Perfect. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the path we want to go down. Um, but to go back to your question, what aspect of supplements? It's the same with medication. The capsule uh, can have emulsifiers in it. Some people are, you know, sensitive to gluten and that can actually hurt some people. Uh, Most people don't have any issues with gluten, so that's fine. So, not only the capsule, but you know, what's in it that is not regulated, right? There have been studies, and many of you have seen this on the news, where they'll take a typical supplement and they did independent party, you know, uh, party testing on it, and it actually had something completely different from what it reported that it had, right? So, like, one had crazy amounts of silica or salt and it had nothing like very minimal ingredient that it was supposed to have. So um, yes, you know, there are certain certifications that companies can undergo that will, you know, will say, hey, this is a more verified uh, like a product. It was independent party tested and it has a certification. So those are things that, you know, it would be great to uh, educate yourselves on, especially if you Feel like you're taking a lot of supplements right now um, and have that frank discussion with your doctor. Your doctor really should know about all your supplements. Your dietician should know about all your supplements, right? Um, and tell you benefits and risk of each of these. Is there evidence? Is there enough evidence for the supplement that you're taking? Are you deficient in it? Like, for example, taking a regular multivitamin for most stages of life is not recommended. And there have been studies where actually it showed increase in mortality uh, from just taking a multivitamin. Why? Because you're getting in a multivitamin, you're getting so many vitamins and minerals. You might be overdosing in some of them. Maybe you're getting it enough from the diet. So why do you need to supplement? So that's why I'm not a fan of blends when it comes to vitamins and, and minerals, like I mentioned before, if you're deficient in something or you're risking deficiency, then that's a time to definitely supplement. Um, but everything you're taking, everything you put in your mouth, you should be discussing with your healthcare team to make sure make sure there's more benefit to it than risks.
0: hundred percent. I completely agree. And I always tell people to be very careful about the brands of supplements that they use because there's a lot of bullshit out there. So Thank you for making that point clear. I want to kind of transition to the food aspect of all this. I know you mentioned nutrition plays a big role in the gut microbiome, obviously. And I hear so many experts speak about how the gut microbiomes with the most diversity are the healthiest. So how can we improve the diversity of our gut microbiome through nutrition? And you know, if someone has dysbiosis in the gut, what can they do nutrition wise to start slowly rebuilding that gut microbiome?
1: So, yeah, that's a great question. As I was sipping on my matcha latte, (laughs) um, matcha is a great, um, uh, great addition, uh, to your lifestyle. If you guys haven't tried it, my recommendation with matcha, because it is a powder and it could, you know, um, it's a powder. So technically could be a supplement, um, get it from a good company, any powder, um, that you are putting in your, in your body in the form of nutrition, um, because th- the powder form means it's usually more concentrated. It, that, you, that is something that you really need to vet where you're getting it from to make sure there's no heavy metal contamination, which is found in a lot of like chocolate, coffee, teas, etc. Um, so Sipping on my matcha for improved microbiome and mental clarity. So, you know, what the studies show is that now there really is no, no doubt. There are studies uh, from throughout the entire world, multiple populations, even, popu- even studies comparing, you know, less, less industrialized um, societies versus more industrialized societies. Really, the overwhelming evidence shows that a high fiber low saturated fat diet is the one that's healthiest for human beings and also the planet, right? So why is it help, Why is it helpful for human beings? Because high fiber means you're feeding the gut microbiome. Low saturated fat mean, means you're not actually feeding the disease promoting microbes in our gut. So the disease promoting microbes in our gut, they process Uh, high saturated fat foods and high saturated fat foods come from two places. They come from animal products and they come from processed foods, right? So what, what does that mean? That our diet should really be more whole plant foods because they are higher in fiber and minimize processed foods and minimize animal meats, right? Animal products. Why? Because they're high in saturated fat. So the fiber aspect feeds the beneficial microbes. The other stuff feeds the disease promoting microbes. And then by doing that, and again, it's not about being bogged down by the little details, right? So what does that diet look for you? Do you have to compete hundred percent plant-based? No, it doesn't because we have studies showing that plant forward diets, such as the Mediterranean diet also have these beneficial effects. So what that breakdown means for you only you can make that decision, you know, for you and your family based on your taste, your desires, and your goals for your health. But definitely, it needs to include a plant-based diet or plant-forward diet. So what if that means 10% um, animal-based and 90% um, plant-based, then that's fine. If it's 30, 70, that's fine. But it really has to shift in that, in that favor of a plant-forward or, or plant-based diet. Um, And yeah, I mean, these diets, not only do they feed our beneficial microbes, but they are also low in saturated fat, low in cholesterol. That means that they are not only uh, helping your digestive system, your microbiome, and that's indirectly affecting the rest of the body, but it's actually also directly affecting the rest of your body through the cardiovascular system, the renal system. For example, somebody with Kidney issues doesn't tolerate high protein. So then like these high protein diets are not going to be beneficial for for somebody with chronic uh, kidney disease. So we just have a lot of evidence showing from many, many studies and across the entire world showing how plant-forward diets really are the key to health and what that percentage looks like for you, only you can decide.
0: And for someone who is on a plant forward diet or who wants to start doing that, I know a big complaint when I bring up the plant-based lifestyle with people is, and all the fiber, especially as a part of that is gas and bloating and all these issues with digesting the food because their bodies might not be used to having all that fiber. So what do you recommend for people who are experiencing that or who are afraid of that? Or, you know, I have some friends who tried the vegan lifestyle said that they were too gassy and bloated and then stopped. So what is kind of your response to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a reason for that. So first of all, your microbiome is needs to be trained, just like your muscles need to be trained. um, When you're trying to run a 5k, a 10k, a half marathon, a full marathon, you don't just start running the full marathon one day, right, you have to train your muscle. And it's actually an entire mindset, right, that you have to adopt, not only training your body, but training your mind as well to be able to have the resilience to, um, you know, to be able to run that. So the microbiome is the same we talked about how complex the system is you can't go from 0 to 100 in from one day to the next so you have to train this microbiome especially because we talked about that the microbiome is the one responsible for digesting fiber So the key is in the microbiome. Um, If you are not used to eating high fiber, or let's just simplify, you're not used to eating beans, legumes, right? That means that the microbes responsible for digesting and breaking down the legumes, they're just not going to be there to do the job. So we need to train them little by little. How I do this in my practice is we start very small by not overwhelming your body. So we want to be persistent, but as tolerated, right? We start with a little bit, half a teaspoon of beans per day. Some recommendations to deal with bloating from beans, um, and for example, from some grains is to pre-soak them. So I always just give them a general, like pre-soak your beans for 12 to 24 hours. Every bean is different, um, but I just give them that because it's much easier for them to remember. Pre-soak your beans for 12 to 24 hours, then replace that water with clean water and then start the cooking process. That's one way to decrease the bloating from beans because what you're doing is that you're actually softening the outer shell, but you're also getting rid of a lot of the bloating causing prebiotics or FODMAPs, right? In, in by replacing that water. So do that. Um, Another way to decrease bloating from legumes and some grains is to buy sprouted, for example. And sprouted is great because it's not only going to be better tolerated, but it actually has a heightened nutritional component by the sprouting process. And then the third um, recommendation that I have is add herbs and spices. Culturally, what herbs and spices did you grow up eating? Because what we grew up with culturally, our microbiome is actually perfectly designed for that, not only because of our genetics, but also because of our upbringing. So those are my three recommendations to deal with bloating from legumes or grains, for example. But you have to remember that at the end of the day, you have to go at your own pace Um, that just because something causes a lot of bloating, the problem is not in the food. In fact, the problem is in your microbiome. So let's work to fix your microbiome so you can tolerate a large variety of foods and not restrict uh, uh, these plant-based foods, which we know are feeding the different species in your microbiomes and really gonna be contributing to long-term health. So those would be my recommendations. The key is in the microbiome, this is you not tolerating a food is a sign of a disease microbiome. So let's work to fix it. Not And the solution is not to avoid the food 100%, but to introduce it in a small amount and then progress from there, increasing the amount as tolerated. And only you can make that determination of whether you feel like you're tolerating that food or not.
0: Thank you for kind of explaining that because I always am like, no, it's not about the plant-based diet. That's not, what's not working for you. It's probably your body's reaction to it because it's not used to it. So I love this yeah. small steps approach and taking it. So- yeah. So
1: just to interrupt you right there, it means a deficiency in your microbiome. If right. you can't tolerate a plant-based food, that's either a deficiency in your microbiome or something like more rarely, celiac disease or non-celiac gluten intolerance, which is a real condition. And we do have to kind of like weed those out, but like for legumes don't have wheat so, or gluten. So, right. so um, that's not, but that's a deficiency in your microbiome or somewhere along your digestive system that we need to get to the root cause of and fix that so that you can get them tolerating, uh, you know, you can tolerate them better. Right.
0: So I have one more question for you, and then I have some rapid fire if we have time, but I just wanna know, what is a healthy amount to poop per day? Because this has been long debated among, you know, me and my colleagues, friends, people in this in this space. So from a gastroenterologist's perspective, what is your opinion on this?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we have something called the gastrocolic reflex, meaning every time we put food in our body, our body is actually designed our digestive system to move food along and possibly result in a, in poop, right? In a bowel movement. So um, as many times as you're eating, you could be having a bowel movement. So let's say three times plus two snacks, you could be having a bowel movement up to five times a day. These bowel movements mean that you're not, you know, you're not uncomfortable that it's not associated with pain or bleeding. Or diarrhea, for example, or you know discomfort, meaning a lot of straining. So up to five times per day, I think it's a normal amount of times to have a bowel movement. And some people don't have a bowel movement every day. You know, if you're eating high fiber, you likely are having at least one bowel movement a day. You know, and it could be high volume, very high volume, where you fill up the the toilet bowl. If we want to get really graphic. So no, seriously, like my son is three and a half year old, plant based, and my husband's like. <laughs> what is happening to this child? What is coming out of this child? Um, so that's very healthy, you know, like he's losing his body weight. In um, no, but but yeah, it shouldn't be associated with the discomfort, bleeding or diarrhea. And up to five times a day, I think it's normal. But some people, you know, they do have a slower uh, digestive system. So maybe going every other day. In Technically, our textbooks say er, even every three days is normal if it's not associated with any of the things that we talk about. Our textbook safe between once every three days to three times per day is normal. We know that, you know, that is a range and not everybody's gonna fit that that curve. But yeah, I would say up to five times per day if you're eating a uh, high fiber nutrition and it's not associated with any other issues.
0: Got it. Thank you for clearing that up. And I really wanted to delve into the topic of probiotics with you, but I feel like that's a whole conversation in and of itself. So maybe we'll do that another time and get you back on to talk about supplements and probiotics and, you know, postbiotics, which are a thing now and all of that stuff. But I did want to ask you just some rapid fire questions, a few for you specifically, and then I have five that I ask every guest. So yeah. The first one is What are the top three benefits you've noticed of going plant based?
1: Um, so I would say increased energy, mm-hmm. better bowel movements, and better sleep.
0: Love it. Those are all things that everyone, I think, is striving for. So if that's not inspiration, I don't know what is. Yeah. And then what is your favorite plant based meal?
1: Oof. Oh my goodness. I have so many. Um, so I love Thai food. I love Mexican food. Really, I, I really can't decide. Um, but really, like bowls, I love bowls. So whether they're Asian inspired or Mexican inspired, I love bowls because they you just pack in so much diversity in, in one plate. And so you're hitting all those microbiome points, you know, targeting so many different microbes that you're feeding with the bowl. But also they're so delicious and you don't get bored because there's so much variety.
0: I love a good bowl. What is one tangible tool that someone can take away and start doing today for their gut health?
1: Um, so for their gut health, I would say um only one. I have so many. Um you can so, get more than one. Okay, okay. So Quick for one. your gut health, um really uh, focus on eating uh less processed. And start deep breathing practice. So those would be my two. So focus on eating less processed and focus on eating on, on deep breathing um, every day, even if it's like two minutes. Um, because that was really going to activate that gut brain axis.
0: And now for the questions I ask everyone, what is your favorite fruit?
1: Oh um, mango. Without without the best. I love mango. Yeah.
0: What is your sun sign, your astrology sign? Pisces nice in March
1: yeah
0: cool and what is one book that has changed your life and that you would recommend to everyone
1: oh oh man I can't decide (laughs) I know these get
0: hard I know I know I know I know
1: I really can't decide
0: (laughs) that's okay if you if one comes to mind you can mention it but what is one habit or ritual that you do every day that's a non-negotiable for you
1: um hmm. I would say at least turn on my meditation app (laughs) at least turn it on whether I do a a full meditation or deep breathing um I really encourage people to um get a meditation app um because it's It's kind of an uh, accountability partner, you know, and it'll track how many minutes you're doing and you, you'll surprise yourself how much you're actually opening up that app and, and engaging in deep breathing or meditation. So I would say that.
0: Love it. Which (laughs) app do you like to use?
1: I use Headspace. And for my patients with IBS, I recommend Nerva, um, which is a gut directed hypnotherapy app that's really great. And actually, you know, there are studies. So this was gut-directed hypnotherapy was um, was something that Mo- Monash uh, University started. And they've had several research trials comparing a low FODMAP diet to gut-directed hypnotherapy. And actually gut-directed hypnotherapy is just as effective. It resulted wow. in 75% decrease in symptoms uh, for patients without the restriction, right? And without having to... To Because low FODMAP actually changes, if done long enough, it disrupts the gut microbiome and results in lower diversity of your gut microbiome. And it's difficult to follow. And if somebody doesn't have access to a dietitian, um, they might stay on that restricting phase for longer than they need to, you know? There's just so much misinformation regarding that. So gut-directed hypnotherapy is something that I recommend in all my IBS patients. And actually, you know, a lot of people have IBS in addition to IBD and other GI conditions. So, so definitely check it out. And, and it's on my uh, link tree on, on Instagram. And also I think it's going to be on my website, but at least on my Instagram, it's there um, for you to check it out.
0: Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Low FODMAP is so restrictive and people it's, it's a very temporary, it should be very temporary. So that's a great, you know, alternative to that. Yeah. Yeah my last question for you is this podcast is called thoughts on thriving. So what are your thoughts on thriving? What do you think is the key to thriving?
1: Yeah. So I think the key to thriving is identifying those areas that at this point in time you need help with, you know? Uh, So for some, it should, it can be nutrition for others, it's stress management for others. it's like um, physical activity and exercise and just, And for many, it's just a combination of several, right? So identifying the key areas where you can improve on and just start taking those one to two steps every week to improve them. um, You'll see that, you know, after a couple of weeks, you've made huge progress in your health.
0: So true. And such a good, easy way to kind of just take inventory on everything in your life and start doing little things to help yourself. So thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Mendez. Where can everyone find you if they want to kind of follow up, explore your page a little more? You post really amazing info on Instagram, so I encourage everyone to follow her, but just let us know where we can find you, social media, website, all that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very active on social, on social media on Instagram, like you mentioned, as plant based gut talk altogether, plant based gut talk, or just, you know, um, Google me as uh, Google me, Vanessa Mendes, Dr. Vanessa Mendes, Um, my website is active, but it's being revamped in a major way. So definitely has tons of resources or will the new version, but this one does too. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter because I um, send out free eBooks every month uh, to my subscribers. And um, yeah, on all things, not only recipes, but things like pelvic floor or mindfulness uh, exercises to do this month. Things like that. So definitely follow, uh subscribe to my website, drvanessamendez.com, dr like drvanessamendez.com, or follow me on Instagram as Plant Based Good
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendez. This was such a pleasure and one of the most informative episodes to date. I think everyone is gonna have to listen to this twice to just kind of absorb all that information. It was wonderful and so amazing to learn from you. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on here, Ava. Of
0: course. I hope you all have a good rest of your day and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Bye guys.